We're beginning a series called Unread Letters, and uh, we're going to have a look at these seven letters uh, in Revelations 2 and 3. And these are, we've called them unread letters, and we've spelt red, R-E-D, on purpose, because these are letters from Jesus to his church. And sometimes I think these are letters or words of Jesus that we have put to one side or forgotten about or uh, said, well, they're in Revelation, so it's a bit weird. They don't really count as much as the Gospels count. Uh, And so we sort of overlook them and and don't spend as much time as we maybe should uh, in them. So I'm really excited for the next... uh, seven weeks to, to look at each of these seven letters and, and what it is that Jesus might be speaking to our hearts about, speaking to our church about um, and encouraging us with. And, and as we look at these seven letters, I think what's really important for us to understand is that these seven churches that Jesus wrote letters to were real churches with real people. These are not some made-up uh, churches with made-up people, hypothetical situations. These were real people, real churches. And, and Jesus wrote that a letters to them because he was concerned with them or he would, wanted to encourage them or he wanted to communicate something that he found uh, very important. And so he used John, who wrote Revelation, to, to see a vision and to write down what he saw uh, to p- pass on to these churches. And um, I think what's, what's interesting in, in looking at these, these letters is that there are seven letters and seven in the Bible uh, represents completeness or wholeness. And so I think uh, one of the one of the big things that most commentators would say about the significance of them being seven letters, even though there was more churches in Asia at the time, is that uh, God wants us to see that the letters are for the complete church, for the whole church. Just like there are seven epistles from Paul, uh, the epistles are for the whole church. There are seven letters to the churches that John wrote down so that we would see that it's for everyone. It's for us. It's not just for Ephesus this morning, but it's for us. And so... We're going to see these letters then. We're going to see even in Revelation that it's really who, about who Jesus is. Right at the beginning of Revelation, we read this. In Revelation 1, verse 1 to 3, it says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Or it could say the revelation of Jesus Christ. Literally, uh, this is the revelation of Jesus in the sense that it's from him and it's about him. And so the whole book of Revelation is about many things, but primarily it's about who Jesus is. And John writes and hopes that we would see, above all other things, who this Jesus is. Who this Jesus is. And so don't miss that, that he wants us to see who Jesus is. And so we're going to have a look at these unread letters and, and maybe sometimes they've been neglected, sometimes we've, maybe you've read them a lot, um, Maybe you haven't. Maybe you didn't even know that they were there. Um, but let's have a look at them together this morning and, and see what God would want to share with us. So we're going to read the first letter. We're going to jump straight to chapter 2 and read verses 1 to 7. 1 to 7. So it says this, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, And the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. 
Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favour. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. God, would you help us to have those ears to, to listen, ears to hear your voice this morning, what the Spirit is saying. Help us to, to not just hear, but help us to put into action those things that you want us to put into action this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't know about you, but I can only speak one language fluently, and that's and you might not say it's you might say it's not very fluent. Um, <clears throat> some Sundays it's not. But I can only speak English, and I remember speaking to some people. Hands up if you're bilingual or trilingual or quadlingual. I don't know, does it go more than people? Yeah, of course it does, yeah. <laughs> I, was, uh, I remember talking to a couple of guys um, from this church, uh, this is a few years ago now, um, who were from South Africa, and uh, they were speaking South Africans to each other in front of us, and we... There was, a, there was a bunch of us guys there and we found that very rude that they would um, sort of... South, is that right? What do I know? Africans. Is that right? Just Africans. They don't have a, just a South version or a North version? Maybe they do. Maybe you don't know about it. Anywho, they were speaking Africans um, in front of us and... Uh, and having a good old laugh, and we thought, oh, what is this they're talking about? Uh, and anyway, we ended up having this conversation to these, to these guys who sort of grew up in Australia but um, came across at an early age, and we said, you know, when you, when you think in your, in your head, do you think in Afrikaans or do you think in English? Because like, I always wonder about that. Like, those people that are very fluent in both languages and sort of grew up with both, do they think in English or Afrikaans? And so we sort of went around the circle and... Um, uh, most of them said, oh, I think in Afrikaans, I think in Afrikaans. And then I remember, I don't know if, if Inika's here this morning, but her son Bert, um, who was a champion bloke, uh, he's married now, and I think he's living in Canada. Um, but he, he turned around and he said, oh, and we said, Bert, do you think in Afrikaans or do you think in English? And he said, oh, I think in pictures. <laughs> and we just, we just lost it. That was the funniest thing we ever heard. And um, Bert thinks in pictures and and I say that because John here is writing something down, but really it's a picture. Really it's a picture. It's, it's, he's trying to, to communicate something, but really it's something that we should see. It's, it's more than just a few words, and, and you know, a picture paints a thousand words, and you can imagine that, that what John actually saw in his visions were so vivid, and, and he's trying to write it down, but we have to pray and ask God that he would show us what it is that he wants us to see. Beyond the words, God, what do you want us to see about this Jesus? Visions are great, but there is, um, there is something about seeing what God has written down in his word that is that much more profound. And so I pray that we would see who Jesus is through this, through this series. And I think there's something powerful about seeing Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, it says, We all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
So we with unveiled faces, we that are saved by Jesus, contemplate the Lord's glory, look upon Jesus. And as we look and as we see Jesus, we are changed from glory to glory. We are changed. You know, some people say that seeing is believing. When you see something, you believe. I think it's fair to say in Scripture, seeing is becoming. Seeing is becoming. When we see Jesus, when we contemplate who he is, we become who God wants us to become. There is something so grand, so magnificent about seeing Jesus. More than we can hear about him when we see him. When we see him in his, in his glory, with his grace, we become more like him. We become what we behold. And so let's see Jesus as we travel through these next few weeks. Let's think with John and with Bert, perhaps, in pictures. Let's see what he sees and be changed by it. So as we begin to think about these seven letters, we have to sort of think about what Revelation is about and understand a little bit about it. And so let's, let's do that. Um, one of the things that um, Revelation is obviously a, a, a vision, it's, it's a revelation, apocalypse of a picture of Jesus. John sees he's in, on the island of Patmos and so he um, quickly, he's on, on an island and, and seven churches are sort of around um, and so he writes these seven letters in a sort of a circular way um, and so he writes a letter to each church as, as Jesus gives the vision or the, or the letter to, to John to write down. But one of the things we see in Revelation 1 is, is a picture of Jesus. And, and Alexis read it out for us already this morning, but I want to read it out again. And I want to see something about this picture of Jesus. It says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I, saw, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And the golden lampstands uh, represent the churches, the seven churches. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And this is a picture of Jesus. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like, uh, were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So often when we think and we talk about Jesus, we talk and we think about Jesus as this uh, nice shepherd boy who came and saved. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was compassionate to the weak and he, was, he showed mercy and grace to those who needed it. He healed people and he, he gave to those who had need. And, and sometimes I think our picture of Jesus is, is one who's... Um, a bit soft, if you like, a bit uh, a cuddly sort of Jesus that we can just be best friends with and we can sing love songs to. And, and, and all those things are right and true, but here we see a completely different picture of Jesus. He's not a soft, cuddly sort of Jesus in this picture. He is a fierce, um, someone that is to be feared. And so we see in this picture that he's got like eyes burning like fire. I don't know if... I've never seen someone... With eyes burning like fire, I've seen some pretty mean eyes before, but you know when you see someone and they've just got that look in their eye and you think, I'm just going to steer clear of you. You look scary. You look like you're going to do some damage. And so Jesus' eyes are burning with fire. And he's got, uh, his voice is like rushing waters. Have you ever been near a massive waterfall before and, and waters are just pounding down? 
and you can't hear anything else. Someone could be shouting to you, and you just couldn't hear anything else. It's just like that, that sound just encompasses every frequency on the spectrum, and it's all you can hear. It's all you can hear. And so Jesus' voice is like this. It's powerful. It's, it's all John could hear. It's all he could sense. It's like this vision was completely engulfing who he was. And he's, uh, he's, out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword, you know, representing the word of God. And we, we read that in Hebrews as well. And so we see this picture of Jesus that is strong and powerful. He is king. He's someone to be feared. He's strong. And John says after this, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. When we see Jesus like this in all his brilliance and all his glory and all his strength and his might, we should be driven to our knees. We should be driven to our knees with this sense of awe and wonder and fear. Like, Jesus, how can I stand in your presence? How can I be where you are? How can I see you? Your holiness, your, your might, you compared to me, I fall as though dead. But then, it goes on in verse 17, then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So although we can't stand, he says, don't be afraid. I'm alive. I've conquered death. I've taken your sin and you are okay in my presence. Even though you should be dead, he is right. If you were to stand before me and I hadn't taken sin away, you would be dead. But you don't have to be afraid. I died, I died, so you don't have to. So as we begin to look at these letters, let's remember this. Jesus is king. He is creator, he is almighty, he is not weak. He will determine the eternal um, destination of every single person. Don't just think of him as a cuddly, soft shepherd boy. He is so much more than that. He is so much stronger than that. And so this powerful, strong Jesus writes these letters. And the first one is to the church in Ephesus. And so Ephesus is a large city um, of the day. It's probably 250,000, 300,000 people living in this city. And so in that time, 2,000 years ago, that is like as, just about as big as they come in terms of cities. It's a big, big city, a massive hub, loads of people, loads of pagan religions all competing for uh, people's attention. And people would just take on the religions like um, whatever suited their fancy, whatever would add to their life. And there was no sense of like um, you just had one religion and, and to the exclusion of all others. That was just unheard of. You just took from whatever spirit or whatever God, Greek God, uh, you wanted to, whatever would suit your life or whatever you needed at that moment. And so Christianity breaks into Ephesus and comes with this idea that Jesus is the way, the truth. There's, there's no sort of uh, mixture when it comes to Jesus. He doesn't add to whatever religion you're already living. He is your life. There is no, no other thing needed. Uh, you don't need to add to him. And so a culture which embraced every religion uh, was confronted with this idea of Christianity. It was very countercultural. It was very countercultural. It was hard to live out the Christian faith in Ephesus because it was so countercultural. It meant standing against certain practices, certain ideals. Certain things of that time where it was like, it's okay to do this, or it's expected that you would do this. It sounds similar to our culture today, doesn't it? That we just, whatever, you, whatever suits you, whatever you want to believe, your truth is your truth. Don't put it on to me. Whatever, whatever floats your boat, that's good for you, but 
You can't tell me that Jesus is the way. It's very countercultural, and so we can identify in a lot of ways with this church in Ephesus. So, John writes this letter. Let's look at the first three verses quickly. And we're going to look at um, what, what Jesus sees as the good things happening at the church of Ephesus, the encouraging things that Jesus sees. He says, write this to the, to the angel of the church. The angel could have been maybe uh, the pastor or uh, literally an angel over that church. Uh, that's not the important thing. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That is the seven churches. I know the things you do, and I've seen your hard work and your patience and endurance, and I know that you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. What sobering words to hear from Jesus. I know what you have done. I have seen. I know and I have seen. Jesus says that to us this morning. I know you and I have seen you. I know you and I have seen you. We love to put up facades, in our, especially in our Western culture. We love to say, uh, put up this image of who we really are, but behind closed doors we are someone maybe much different than that. But Jesus says, I, I see past your facade, I, I know who you really are. Um, Instagram is a, is a wonderful thing in our culture today and there are so many wonderful photos that people put up um, on Instagram. I found this one um, you know, a nice little photo of a laptop on a bed it looks very inviting, but uh, that's just a facade of what's really going on in that space. If the next photo shows, just sometimes the picture is just not what's really happening. Sometimes that perfect setup that someone might uh, perceive to, to be or to have is when you zoom out a little bit and see every part of who they are, as Jesus does, it's, it's a little different to what we um, present. And we all do it. We come into church with facades. We come into church with our church face on and, and we say things are good. God is good. All glory to him. We sing our songs. Open our Bible. Amen the preacher. Get up and cheer the preacher. I know it's uncontrollable sometimes, the, the mask you guys put on. But we all do it. We all do it. We put on these masks and we like to pretend everything is, is great or at least better than what we know is really happening in our heart. But Jesus comes and he says, I know and I have seen. What does he know about you this morning? What does he see in you this morning? There's no hiding from Jesus. There's no hiding from Jesus. This letter this morning is, is to us as a church, to us as a, a community, but it's also to us as individuals. And he knows us, he sees us. We can't fake Jesus out. He, see, he, he doesn't just see the Instagram post we put up. He sees so much more than that. What a sobering thought that Jesus sees us and he knows us. But he sees and he knows Ephesus and he's encouraged by what he sees and by what he knows. And I think sometimes he might see the same thing with us. We might just see these words, he sees us and he knows us and think, oh no. And we just think about all the terrible things about us. But he sees and he knows all the great things as well. He sees that we serve, that we give our, we give our life, we, we give our time and our money, our resource. We work, we serve, we clean the toilets and we, we serve on kappa, we serve in creche and we serve in kids and serve on youth and, and do all these things that maybe no one else sees, but Jesus sees. 
He knows and he sees. And he is encouraged and he says, keep on going. Keep on going. It is great work that you are doing. It is great that you are serving my people. It is great that you are patiently going after the things that I want you to. Jesus so sees us. Jesus knows us. He, he doesn't um, skip over everybody, anybody. No one is unnoticed when it comes to Jesus. The Creator doesn't miss you. He doesn't skip over you. He knows where you are this morning. You don't need to pretend with Him. He knows you. And then He says this in verse 6. He says, But you have this in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. And so He sees and He knows the, Eph- the Ephesus church and He's encouraged. And then He sees also that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans, um, not really sure what their evil deeds were. Again, I don't think that's the most important thing about what Jesus is saying here. Nicolaitans were someone, uh, people that followed the teachings of Nicholas. Uh, and Nicholas literally means um, to conquer, conquer the people. And so maybe that was part of what the evil deeds were, that they were um, sort of putting their power, uh, the imbalance of their power over people in a, in a way they shouldn't have. Uh, or maybe they were immoral. Um, in, the, in the third letter, we hear again the Nicolaitans and, and their immorality. But what's clear is that there are certain things that Jesus doesn't like. There are certain things that Jesus hates that he wants us all to, also to hate, the evil deeds, the sin he wants us to hate. And so Jesus would say to us, I love it when you hate sin. I love it when you hate sin, when you grow in your hate for sin and your love for me, your love for people, that is a good thing. And again, this is a very countercultural message for, for us today. In a very tolerant society where we are to tolerate and say, that's okay, whatever you want, whatever you want, to, to sort of say, you shouldn't be doing this, or God would hate this, this sin, is a very intolerant thing to say and so it's it's a countercultural way of living just as it was for the Ephesians back in this day standing up against anything is looked down upon we don't uh, like those who seem to have any sort of moral compass or claim things as immoral to say that's not the way you should do things that's not the way you should speak that's not the way uh, you should live So Jesus is happy with the church in Ephesus for these reasons. He sees the work they're doing. He sees their patience. He sees that they're intolerant of sin. He sees their suffering. He's pleased with their uncompromising morals. And so there's lots of encouraging words here for the Ephesian church. And there's lots of encouraging words that he would say to us as well. That he is pleased with what he sees. He loves how we serve. He loves how we give of our time. But, there's a big but. Nevertheless, some translations say, I have this complaint against you in verse 4. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But I have this against you, says Jesus. What sobering words again. It's like he says all these encouraging things, but nevertheless, I have this against you. This should make us sit upright. It's like, what does Jesus have against us? What, does, what would Jesus be most concerned about? No amount of good can outweigh uh, what Jesus is about to say. 
No amount of our effort of doing the right things is going to outweigh what Jesus is about to, to put down. And what Jesus puts down is, he says, you've walked away from your first love. You don't love like you used to. You don't love like you used to. Now, I found, um, I was trying to find a good photo of Alana and I when we were younger. It's my first love. Um, that was a few years ago. I haven't aged a bit. Looks good. Um, but, you know, I got thinking about this idea of our first love. And if, if my love for Alana um, was just demonstrated to her by me flashing my wedding ring to her whenever she wanted me to know that I loved her, it's like, well, I married you. I got out my marriage certificate and said, flapped it around in the wind, I love, I love you, Alana, look at my marriage certificate. Like, I obviously, I've done all the legal requirements to show my love, so you must know that I love you. She's not going to be pleased with that. She's not going to be pleased with that. that that's not what uh, she's looking for. She wants my heart. She wants who I am more than she wants my legal obligations to her as a husband. If I just keep on keeping the legal requirements of the marriage, I've missed it. I've missed the point of what is really going on. She wants my heart, not my ability to do something for you, for her. And Jesus is the same. He wants our heart. He doesn't want just our legal obligations to him. He doesn't want just our ability to do the right things. He doesn't want to just know and see the good things we've done, that we've patiently served and done the, you know, the good church things to do. But he wants our heart. More than anything else, Jesus wants our heart. God is more concerned with our hearts than he is with anything else. He doesn't want you to keep some legal requirements. They only matter if your heart is in them. I was even thinking about you know, these, these shows that are on TV now, Married at First Sight and the likes. It's like they have this idea that if, if we put a, a, a ring on someone's finger and give them a marriage certificate, then maybe their heart will follow those legal those legal decisions. And it's, it's completely the, the opposite way to, to, to the way Jesus has wired us. It's when he has our heart that all those things that we should and, and know we ought to do, they just follow so easily. They just happen. We don't have to think about doing them or, or try to do them or convince ourselves to do them. Our heart just says, I'm, I'll do whatever it is that you want me to do because you have my heart. I love you. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And we see this example even in the Old Testament. And you know this story, if you've been in church, uh, of David, the choosing of David. And, and when David is chosen to be the next king, it says this, the Lord said to Samuel, who's going to choose the next king, don't judge by his appearance or his height. I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. Just think about that statement for a minute. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. And sure enough, David was the, the man who was chosen to be the next king. Even though there was, there was nothing really going for him, there was no outward appearance of him being uh, able to be the next king. In fact, David was someone through the rest of Scripture that we see fail in tremendous ways, in awful ways. I mean, he's committing adultery. He's killing people. But there is something about David's heart that God says, that's, that's the man. In fact, I'm going to 
I'm going to send Jesus. He's going to be the son of David. There's something about David that, that his heart is for me. His heart is for me. I don't think this could be overstated, that God's concern is our heart, not what you do for him, not your behaviours. His concern is your heart because he knows from your heart everything flows. Everything follows if he has your heart. So where is your heart this morning? What's the condition of your heart? Is this concern that Jesus has for the Ephesian people the same concern he might have for you and for me this morning? That we've walked away from our first love. We've walked, we don't love like we used to. We don't want to spend time praying like we used to want to. We don't spend time in his word like we used to. We don't sing like we used to. The, the heart in our relationship with Jesus is, has just drifted a bit. Sure, we're doing all the, the right things. We're, we're pretending to be the right person, but inwardly our heart is just not in it. Where is your heart this morning? Does Jesus have your heart? Come back to your first love. Jesus wants your heart more than anything else. And then the letter finishes with this. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Every week in this series, this is going to be the question. Every week, the letter's finished in the, in the same sort of way. Do you have ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying? Sure, you might have heard all the words I just um, put out this morning, but did you hear what the Spirit of God was saying to you this morning? Were you leaning in to, to what God was wanting to impress on your heart this morning? Or did you miss it? Because God, I believe, wants to speak to each and every one of us. But do you have ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying? Are you in the conversation? Are you in the, are you in the room with Jesus? Are you seeing him the way John wants us to see him? Do you understand him? This is for you this morning. Jesus is writing these words for us as a church, for us in the seats this morning. What does Jesus see and know of you? Does he have your heart or just your facade? The great news this morning as the band comes back up is found, I think, in, in chapter 1. We see something set up at, at the beginning of chapter 1 that just gives us so much hope through every one of these letters. Every one of these letters, there is, it is laced with hope. And the hope is in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. What a title to give Jesus, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has freed us from our sin. He has freed us from the sin of of maybe our drifting, drifting and wandering heart. The hope this morning is that when our heart drifts from Jesus, his heart doesn't drift from us. When maybe our attention is not on him like, like it should be, his attention is still on us. 
He doesn't look at us in a way that says, oh, they've blown it too many times. It's no, no use anymore. He writes this letter to Ephesians with the hope that they might turn and their hearts could change, that there was hope for change to happen. He wouldn't write this if there was no hope for them. But he wrote this with this sense that there was hope that they would change, that their heart would come back to him. His heart is not wandering when it comes to you. He is not just filling some legal requirement. In fact, it's the complete opposite. If he was just doing what was required, we wouldn't be here this morning. We wouldn't be sitting trying to hear his voice. There'd be no hope for us. But because of his love, because he first loved us, we can choose to love him. We can, our heart can be drawn back to his. We can have confidence, even in our wandering, to come back to him. And so this morning, we're going to sing, we're going to worship. I'm going to invite you to come and take communion during this last song. And maybe this morning you need to make a, a commitment or you, you need to come back and your heart needs to come back to Jesus. And I want to encourage you that if that's you this morning, to come down to, to the front, just as a symbolic thing and just say, Jesus, you can have my heart. Maybe it's been wandering from you. Maybe you need to kneel. Maybe you need to see that vision of Jesus, that He is powerful, that He is someone to be in awe of and you need to come and kneel and say, Jesus, you can have my heart. Maybe it's, it's wanted from you for too long, but you can have it back. I don't want to just give you lip service. I don't want to just give you my deeds, but I want you to have every part of me. So can we stand and can we pray? Lord Jesus, this morning, we thank you for your, your love towards us. We thank you that... that by your blood, our sins are forgiven. Even when we wander far from you, when we forget our first love, you don't forget us. And Jesus, this morning, we choose to come back to that first love. We choose to surrender all that we have and all that we are. And God, even as we take communion this morning and remember your body broken for us and your blood shed on the cross, that it would remind us of the love that you have for us and the open arms in which you embrace us with. We are not too far from you. Hope is still here. And so Jesus, we fall to our knees in awe of who you are, in awe of your love and your brilliance. Jesus, move amongst us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.